Thanks very much. You should have a handout in your packs, which will give you um, all of the samples of poetry that I'm going to be talking about uh, today. So I think then that Royal Irish Academy Manuscript 23N10, the Book of Valley Common, uh, challenges us to think more critically about what constituted poetry, what was a poem in medieval Ireland. Modern poetry and modern scholarship on poetry uh, privileges lyric verse above all other verse forms. By lyric verse, I mean uh, personal or confessional verse, usually written in the first person, uh, usually non-narrative and non-dramatic. Um, and as such, examples of medieval Irish poetry which are perceived as lyric verse have tended to be subject to far more scholarly attention and more uh, public attention as well uh, than the actually far more voluminous remains of non-lyric poetry. The relatively small proportion of poetry which conforms to modern expectations of lyric verse is what tends to be translated into English included in modern poetic anthologies and studied in poetry classes, whether in the original language or in translation. So one poem in the Book of Ballycommon, uh, which has frequently been held up as an example of lyric verse, is the poem beginning Moineran im Eraglan, Alone in my little cell. Uh, and this poem was translated by Thomas Kinsler, for example, uh, in the new Oxford Book of Irish Verse, and I'll give you, I've given you on the handout there, the first thing is just the first three stanzas of the poem uh, to give you a sense of Kinsler's translation. Uh, he says, all alone in my little cell with no one for company. I love this place of pilgrimage now while I still have life. A hut remote and hidden for repenting of all sin with upright conscience unafraid in the face of holy heaven with a body that good habits made holy, treading it down, and eyes worn out and tearful, with penance for my desires. And it goes on for several more stanzas. Now, Kinsler's translation is beautiful, um, but it's misleading. It creates an image of the ascetic hermit away from society. It creates the impression that this is lyric verse that we can see this hermit in our mind's eye and connect ourselves through empathy and imagination to his experience of self-imposed hardship and repentance and piety. Um, but that all presupposes that our poet is relating his experience in the lyric mode, which, uh, as Jared Murphy's more literal translation of the poem reveals, is not quite the case. So I've given you the same stanzas again. It's the second item on the handout, this time translated by Jared Murphy. He says, alone in my little cell, without a single human being along with me, such a pilgrimage would be dear to my heart before going to meet death a hidden, secluded little hut for forgiveness of all evil, a conscience unperverted and untroubled directed towards holy heaven, sanctifying a body trained in good habits, trampling like a man upon it, with eyes feeble and tearful for the forgiveness of my passions. Now, Murphy, following Kuno Meyer, gives his translation a title, namely A Hermit Song, which, as with Kinsler's translation, creates an image of an ascetic monk separating himself from society for the sake of salvation. 
However, as Murphy's translation uh, makes somewhat clearer in a way that Kinsler's does not, our poet is not actually a hermit. He's not writing from the perspective of someone who's renounced worldly ties, but rather from the perspective of someone who wishes to do so. Such a pilgrimage would be dear to his heart at some point before he dies. So in his seminal article, Early Irish Hermit Poetry, the late and much missed Donacha O'Corrine uh, went further than Murphy and offered a different translation of the first stanza of the same poem. And that's uh, item C there on the handout. So it, he says, all alone in my little cell with no one in my company, that would be a sweet retirement before I go to die. So O'Corrine's key contribution here was to note the double meaning of uh, alathran, uh, which can, as Murphy and Kinsler understood it, mean pilgrimage in the general sense of a religious journey to a holy place, but which also has a specific secondary meaning, namely retirement, often from high office in church or secular society, to a monastery in order to prepare for a good Christian death. So O'Corrine notes that in the final stanza of the poem, the poet articulates his hope for a pleasant little place sanctified by the tombs of the saints amongst monastic enclosures and to be there alone. Thus, O'Corrine argues, what the poet wishes is to be free of the burdens of high office, imagining his retirement here, to retire to a hut within a monastic enclosure. So I've given you the, the, the key quote from a Corrine's uh, article uh, there in the handout. What the poet envisages is neither a hermit uh, nor an anchorite nor a wild holy man of the woods, but a perfectly normal high-ranking clerical retiree of the period. So normal, indeed, that this poem can be read as prescriptive verse rather than as descriptive personal lyric in which an individual sets out his spiritual intentions uh, autobiographically. Um, so this is what people did they, when they retired from high office uh, in major ecclesiastical sites, uh, that they would retire to a smaller cell still within the monastic enclosure, but just away from the, the stress. O'Corrine argues that the only really personal or individual elements in the poem are concerned with what uh, Donica called the details of the retirement package, so specifically he's uh, uh, hoping to experience. So O'Corrine's article set out to reconsider the whole corpus of so-called hermit, hermit poetry a significant subsection of the total corpus of what had been identified as lyric poetry surviving from medieval Ireland. And O'Corrin sought to demonstrate that much of what had been identified as lyric, personal, confessional windows into the lived experience of individuals, may in fact have had other less romantic origins and functions as prescriptive, didactic, or pedagogical verse. So in the time that's available to me today, I want to look at the poetry that is preserved in the Book of Ballycommon, alongside the one we've just been looking at here, um, in some ways that will, I hope, serve as a case study that can extend and develop some of O'Corrine's arguments about the way that we read and understand medieval Irish poetry. 
Um, but I also hope to begin to ask, though I don't presume to hope that I can even begin to answer, uh, some bigger conceptual questions about what poetry was in medieval Ireland. For example, where does prose end and poetry begin? Uh, is there a straightforward distinction between the two, or should we think more about a formal or stylistic spectrum? Is there a difference between a poem and a prayer, or a poem and a hymn? Uh, is the arrangement of poetry in a manuscript inherently meaningful? And what is its relationship to the other texts which surround it? And how was such poetry intended to be read or uh, performed? So the next example I'd like to look at on your handout um, is a poem that is a religious poem. Uh, without a doubt, uh, but which is clearly aimed at a lay audience. Um, and this brief, manuscript, uh, brief poem in the manuscript uh, was edited by Kuno Meyer, uh, who gave it the title, The Duties of a Husbandman. Uh, and it sets out a vision of a kind of ideal uh, householder, free farmer uh, in medieval Ireland. Um, so I'll give you, this is my, my working uh, translation here. Uh, so, if you are a householder, be prudent, be forbearing to everyone, make guests welcome, even if they turn up at all hours. Since every guest is Christ, no trifling saying, better is humility, better gentleness, better liberality towards him. Pay tithes and first fruits, let your word be true, forget nothing of the law of the king. What you give, for God's sake, to the strong or the weak, not only do not fail to give it, but boast not of it, for you will get its reward. When you perform a vigil, fasting, prayer, alms, let it not be for glory before men, let it be for God, whatever you do. Now, this uh, image of lay piety uh, exemplifies well the tone of much of the, the poetry in the manuscript. It's uh, envisaging through verse one element of an ideal Christian society. Uh, in this case, that of lay people living humble and morally upright Christian lives. And in one sense, then, this small, pretty unexceptional, uh, prescriptive poem can be read alongside something like Ordecht Moran, the Testament of Moran, uh, part of the wisdom literature that Dr. Deborah Hayden will be speaking about uh, in her paper. So Ordecht Moran is it's longer, it's more stylistically complex, it's more ambitious, it's arguably more interesting uh, as a work, but it fundamentally seeks to articulate a vision of ideal Christian kingship. Um, it's therefore partaking in the same phenomenon, that is, offering a prescriptive vision of an ideal Christian society. Our little poem here is aimed at the laity, Ordecht Moran, at, at kings, but, but both of those are vital constituent elements of the Christian body politic. But a key difference between the texts is that of form. So our poem on lay morality is clearly a poem. Uh, by the strict definition of medieval Irish uh, poetry is a composition ad adhering to certain metrical rules uh, regarding syllable counts and, and rhyme. Uh, Ordecht Moran, the Testament of Moran, occupies uh, more murky territory. It's, it's not poetry by, by that definition, but it's also not straightforwardly prose. Uh, it's composed in this elevated rhetorical style, which makes use of uh, alliteration, parallelism, tamesis, um, and so on. 
And uh, actually, uh, those people who might have been in Maynooth last night for the research seminar that Professor Johan Kortels uh, gave us, he made some very interesting remarks about uh, requiring a more sort of finely grained um, sort of different places you can occupy in the, in the spectrum between poetry and, and prose. Um, as Fergus Kelly has shown, uh, the style of Odish Morin bears comparison to the legal tracts of the Breth and Nevid uh, family, uh, the products of what Binchy characterized as a poetico-legal school. And the poetic elements of that poetico-legal uh, poetico school is something we will return to in, in due course. So I'll come back to the stylistic thing in a bit, uh, but for the moment, let's just, I want to pursue further this idea that uh, the poetry in the manuscript lays out a kind of programmatic vision uh, for an ideal Christian uh, society. And I want to take uh, together uh, a whole uh, bunch of poems in the manuscript that, uh, that are uh, described as rules, uh, um, and uh, take a look at some of these so I'll begin with uh, the rule of Cormac Macullinan. Um, so this is just uh, 14 quatrains of verse uh, preserved in, in four different manuscripts, one of which is our, our Book of Ballycommon. So all of the manuscripts that preserve this poem ascribe it to uh, Cormac Macullinan, the, the Munster Bishop King who died in, in 908. Uh, the editor of the poem, John Strachan, saw no linguistic reason why the attribution to Cormac could not be authentic, um, although I suspect it's a bit later. Moira Nivueni has uh, recently taken a more cautious approach. She describes the poem as Middle Irish, which seems to suggest a slightly later date than that proposed by uh, Strachan. Um, See, Cormac died in 908, but it's not like everybody on the 1st of January 901 started speaking Middle Irish. So it's, uh, uh, yeah, I'd say it's slightly later, perhaps. Um, so uh, Nivraini says it can't be, de be determined whether or not Cormac is the, is the author or not. Um, it doesn't really matter for our purposes. Um, the, the poem, uh, it begins, Savath Boon Briatha Ishal, Lasting Low-Voiced Congregation, uh, it deals primarily with kind of physical restraint and temperance, rejecting worldly pleasures uh, in order to, to concentrate on the seeking salvation. Um, there's a lot about appropriate sound. Praise of God is good, but chattering is not. You know, silence, um, appropriate silence, appropriate fasting. Uh, renunciation of wine and meat. Um, it's summed up pretty much nicely in just in the one stanza that I've given you there, um, where it says, a, a protection of the soul, an approach to heaven, a wonderful power, a fostering of purity is the food which is, after extinction of desire, Christ's body uh, with the blood of Mary's son. That is, you know, if you conquer your corporeal appetites, then the Eucharist will be uh, sufficient nourishment uh, for you. Now, we have a whole series of poems in the manuscript that are described as rules. The rule of Cormac Macullinan. Uh, the next example I want to look at is the rule of Alva of Emily. Um, the old Irish metrical rule, uh, the next one that I'll look at after that. Um, but although these, I want to argue in this section, is that although these poems all have uh, a coherent similarity of subject matter, um, 
self little self-help guides for good Christians um, on Christian behavior, especially renunciation of, of appetite, fighting temptation, uh, so on and so forth. But I'd like to suggest that all of them are intended for different audiences. Um, so the rule of Alva of Emily, for example, which is the next one on your handout there, I've given you quite a few stanzas of that, so you can just get a kind of sense of, of what it's uh, about. Attributed to Alva of Emily, um, it's not. It's much, much later uh, than, than his period. Um, but it's old Irish and uh, seems to have been written for Oren Mach Sarain. Um, and it says, Say for me to the son of Saran, Heavy is the burden he takes. Let his conscience be diligent, be keen, without pride, proud lying, without vanity. Silent and without speech be his work. Fewness of words, which is not talkative, lets him perform the need of every sick person, together with helping of every sick man. Without pride, without sin of perversity, smiling, without grimace, without laughter, without vindictiveness towards anyone, without proud arrogance, without pomp. Let him be gentle, close, and zealous. Let him be modest, generous, and gracious against the torment of the world. Let him be watchful against the brood of the world. Let him be warlike. Let him be a serpent in his deafness. Let him be a dove with its filial affection. Smooth let him be without fault in vigilance. A fortress be his word of watchfulness. Though he get the bitter world, he should not love, give love to its treasures. Let him plough and distribute, he shall not be too eager. That brings him not past heaven, star beautiful. The jewel of baptism and communion, commandment and intercession, he should receive it. The confession of everyone who gives it, let it be right closely that he conceals it. Now, this particular rule seems to me to be clearly aimed at a senior cleric, uh, someone in a position of some power, a lot of the advice that it gives is uh, about maintaining a, uh, a happy community, uh, dealing with things that might arise, uh, the importance of pastoral care, of hearing confession, uh, and so on and so forth. Let's say it's specifically, I think, aimed at uh, a high-status high cleric in charge of some kind of monastic uh, or ecclesiastical community. By contrast, I would like to argue that uh, another rule, poem, in the uh, same manuscript, the Old Irish Metrical Rule, which was edited and translated by John Strachan, I think this is, again, dealing with similar themes and offering similar kind of advice, but it's skewed towards a different kind of audience. I'd like to suggest that the Old Irish Metrical Rule is aimed at uh, a so-called athleach, uh, an ex-lay person, that is someone who leaves lay life late in their career um, in, and goes into a monastic community in order to prepare for death. Um, the theme of the Old Irish Metrical Rule as a whole is penitence specifically. So it's the similar kind of moral advice, but specifically directed towards penance and acts of penance. Um, again, I've given you a few uh, stanzas for, for, as a sample. Preserve the rule of the Lord, therein thou runnest no risk. It is better that thou transgress it not as long as thy life lasts. This is the essence of the rule. Love Christ, hate wealth, piety to thee towards the king of the sun and smoothness towards men. Continuance in penitence, wonderful the road. Keenness, persistence therein. Heed of death every day, goodwill to every man. 
If there should be anyone who would take the path of repentance, advance a step every day, practice not the ways of a charioteer. And this to me is the key stanza. If thou shouldst have a son or householdry that thou determined to part from, thou shalt not seek them, thou shalt not think of them as though thou were in the earth. You have to leave your family behind, you have to leave your, your secular life behind because you've made this choice to go into a monastic community as a penitence in order to prepare for death. So you should, you should therefore act as though you were already dead and not think about the family that you've, that you've left behind. So, as I say, even though the, the poems that we could take together as rules have, as I say, a kind of uh, conformity of purpose, I think they're addressing different audiences um, uh, from the sort of high-status cleric through to uh, the, the ex-lay uh, penitent. Um, I just gave a, a, a stanza, uh, last one in that section. Uh, it's a working edition and translation by Professor Liam Branagh, who kindly shared it uh, with me. Uh, it's not published yet. Um, and I basically just uh, included it as a kind of two fingers up to funding bodies in academia, really, because it says, sudden or intense work, usually the devil mocks it. Better is the balanced, limited, drawn-out work in the expectation of spending his whole life at it. More 20-year research projects and fewer two-year projects, I think. So, but as I say, this, these are all kind of, um, uh, of of a piece, of a genre, perhaps, I might say, um, but intended, as I say, for different audiences. Now, looking at kind of genres of religious verse within uh, the manuscript, um, I want to move on to the next section where I would like to tentatively propose um, a, a, a potential uh, more specific definition uh, of the term covered, um, which, uh, as you can see on your handout there, now the EDIL, the Dictionary of the Irish Language, um, for the term covered, it's a verbal noun from the verb con uh, oi, uh, the act of keeping, guarding, or preserving. And uh, the, the dictionary entry has a kind of special use of that as a noun, covered, which it defines as poem, hymn. Well, that's a very, very broad definition, an incredibly broad definition. But interestingly enough, two of the poems that we have in the manuscript describe themselves as a covered. So if we take a look at, look at them, can we, you know, from these examples, perhaps suggest something um, they might be doing something a little bit more specific than just generally being a poem or a hymn. Okay. So the first example is uh, a poem called Covers uh, Manchin Leit, which was edited and translated by uh, Kuno Meyer. And this is one of those poems that could very easily slip into being interpreted as the kind of lyric verse nature poetry that we started with. But as we'll see, I hope um, it has, I would argue, a more specific uh, purpose than that. Um, so uh, it says, I wish, O son of the living God, O ancient and eternal king, for a hidden little hut in the wilderness that it may be my dwelling. An all grey, lithe little lark to be by its side, a clear pool to wash away sins through the grace of the Holy Spirit. Quite near, a beautiful wood around it on every side to nurse many-voiced birds, hiding it with its shelter. So far, so hermity and 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 lots of kind of nature image, but he's doing something more complicated than that. And he says, six pairs beside myself, 
praying forever, uh, the king who makes the sun shine, a pleasant church, and with the linen altar cloth, a dwelling for God from heaven, and then a shining candle above the pure white scriptures. This is the husbandry I would take. I will choose and I will not hide it. Fragrant leek, hen, salmon, trout, bees, and so on. Okay. So what he's actually imagining is not himself isolated again from society, going off into to commune with nature, but rather he's imagining an ideal monastic community. The six pairs plus him, that's 12 monks plus one leader, the image of Christ and his apostles being uh, the, the ideal number for this community, but it's a community that has a church, altar cloth, books, candles. Okay, So it's an image of an ideal community. Um, this got me to thinking that perhaps the, the covers, um, thinking about its etymology deriving from, from keeping, guarding, and preserving, that it could be a, a religious poem that is a kind of contemplative aid, that it's something that you think about very profoundly in order to guard against temptations, protect yourself from the wandering of the, of the mind, perhaps. I think that might be confirmed by the second poem that is called Covers uh, in the same, same manuscript. And that's Covers Christ, uh, the Covers of the Cross of Christ, uh, which was edited and translated by, by Kuno Meyer. And this one is, again, a kind of contemplative meditation, uh, this time on, on the crucifixion. So again, I've just given you a few, few stanzas to give you the, the sense of it. I believe in Christ who has arisen and suffered the tree of the cross and who was three days in a stone sepulchre, sad for the side of Mary's son and for his white limbs to be wounded with a pointed lance for the guilt of Adam's sin. When the son of Mary was crucified, darkness went over the world. The sun changed his colour. The earth did not cease from trembling. Okay. And it goes on for, again, a few more stanzas, but entirely sort of focused on the events of the crucifixion. Um, so I think if you're reciting it to yourself, thinking about it, reading it. It can be something that perhaps protects and guards you against um, uh, uh, against temptation, against sin. I'd be very interested to, to hear people's thoughts on that. I, it's perhaps in some way to be compared to uh, a subgenre that we do understand a bit better, which is the lorica, uh, lurach, in, uh, borrowed from, from the Latin into Irish, uh, which is a protective prayer, um, but it tends to be distinguished by having a very formula, formulaic structure, Christ be before me, Christ be beside me, Christ be behind me, that kind of, you know, which, which these don't share. But I suggest that these might be a related subgenre of religious verse with a specific uh, meditative or contemplative uh, function, perhaps. Okay, so my final section, um, I want to, to look at um, one more uh, poem which I've been working on uh, recently, working on an edition and translation of, and to use that to bring us back to these uh, ideas that I alluded to at the beginning about uh, function, uh, form, uh, the, the difference between prose and poetry, uh, and to also nicely bring us back to an Ulster cycle text at the end, uh, just to follow on from, from Ruri's paper there. So the poem that I've been working on most recently uh, is a 24-stanza poem um, on idolatry and uh, the apostolic missions. Um, uh, a very interesting poem, I think, uh, there, all, amongst all this other religious uh, verse. Um, but as far as I'm aware of, it's not really been looked at particularly before. Um, so it's divided into two halves. The first uh, of 12 stanzas 
that describes the creation of the first idol. Uh, this is uh, borrowed from the Old Testament account of the creation of the first idol where uh, a king's son dies, and so he builds a statue of his son out of, you know, through grief, uh, but people start worshipping the statue, and this is said to be the first kind of uh, the idol, and from there, uh, idolatry spreads across the world. That's the first 12 stanzas of the poem here. The second 12 stanzas, though, recount the uh, apostolic missions and the coming of the apostles and their uh, mission across the world to eradicate idol idolatry. So it has a nice kind of uh, mirror uh, image structure. So I've given you um, my just working text and translation here, but I've given you a, a stanza from the first half and a stanza from the second, so you can see the kind of contrast. So uh, in the first half, uh, when it's talking about the building of this first idol, it says, a devil of evil deeds went into the image after it was made. It destroyed the succession of kings by oath-swearing, by gazing at it. It's the, this spread of idolatry, um, in, according to the uh, poet, leads to the sort of uh, the downfall of empires. You know, the, it, it destroys the succession of, of kingship. But by contrast, in the second half, uh, the martyrs uh, uh, and the apostles arrive, and um, he describes these apostles in very striking, heroic terms, the kind of heroic epithets that we might be more familiar with from Ulster cycle stories of the sort that Ruri was speaking about. So, for example, Barnabas is called an ever-victorious flame, the illumination of the very bright torch, the branching tree, like he's the founder of dynasties, as it were, the branching tree was martyred on the tranquil Tyrrhenian Sea. Um, so it has this fantastic uh, kind of heroic uh, yeah, characterization of the, of, of the apostles. And as I was working on this poem, it struck me, given its manuscript context, that you can hardly... Um, think about the, the depiction of these martyrs and their, their bloody sacrifice um, without thinking about it alongside one of the Ulster Cycle tales that's also preserved in the Book of Valley Common, and that is the tale of the death of Conqueror. Um, so in this story, um, uh, the version of the story, there, there are a number of different versions, but in the version of the story um, that is preserved in this manuscript, uh, a Roman consul has uh, arrived at the court of King Conqueror, uh, and um, thinking back to the the, the covers on the cross of Christ, um, what happens is darkness went over the world, the sun changed his colour, the earth did not cease from trembling. So Conqueror says, what's going on? And uh, the, he's told about the crucifixion of Christ. And um, he then... Conqueror launches into a, a so-called rhetoric, one of these kind of very difficult, elusive, the kind of dense sort of poetic text that uh, Professor Cortars was talking about yesterday, um, in which Conqueror says that if he had been there at the crucifixion, he would have defended Christ uh, to prevent him being killed, and says, alas, that I did not get to meet the high king. Mankind would have seen me in the shape of a harsh warrior. I would have been seen doing a manly deed with standing companies as a strong man above them protecting and assisting the Lord. Christ, our heavenly hero, was not unwilling to be caused to suffer, although he was made of an earthen body, our holy, mighty Christ. Um, and at this point, he is so enraged that, um, for reasons too complicated to go into, he has a pickled skull embedded in his brain. Uh, it pops out, and uh, he gets 
drenched in blood. Um, he dies of a brain hemorrhage. Uh, and we are told, last item on your handout, that Conqueror was the first pagan who went into the kingdom of heaven because the blood which he had shed was a baptism to him. Okay, so baptized in his own, his own blood. And as I say, it's very hard now for me to read that without seeing it side by side with these uh, heroic uh, apostles going to their own bloody martyrdoms um, in the poem uh, on idolatry that sits kind of along, alongside it. So um, conscious of time, so I'm going I'm to wrap up with a few conclusions. I've, I've, my conclusions, I've got a, a few of them, but they're all preliminary. Um, and I'm sure that they're all going to be modified by the findings of the other speakers over the next uh, day and a bit. I'm very interested to hear what other people have to say about uh, the other texts in the manuscript. But, but based on my analysis of the, of the freestanding poetry in the book of Ballycommon, in conjunction with some selected examples of prose and rosk and, and prosometric texts um, that I've, I've had a chance to look at. I'd just like to make the following, uh, the following points. So first, and perhaps most generally, that I think our understanding of early medieval Irish poetry is still limited and, and partial. The voluminous evidence is poorly understood. Um, furthermore, our conception of the professional poet is still too greatly informed by the secular poets of the later medieval and early modern periods. We need to better understand the role of the professional religious poet in pre-Norman Ireland. Religious verse isn't just the kind of spontaneous formulations of someone having a moment of spiritual epiphany. Um, communing, you know, pious natures, pious uh, hermits communing with nature and uh, 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 sort of, you know, living outside of society and so on. Instead, a wide variety of religious poetry was being produced for a wide range of audiences, um, lay, clerical, monastic and royal. Religious poetry isn't just for monks and clerics. Um, and this verse can be, it can be devotional, prescriptive, pedagogical, penitential, contemplative, biblical, doctrinal, or a combination of all of those, those things. Um, and yet their poetic techniques, their methods of the composition, um, the metrical demands, the store of imagery, is no different than the so-called secular poetry of the same period. So, so why? Who are these professional religious poets? And second, we still need a more precise and more thoughtful uh, definition of poetic genres. We need a better vocabulary for describing and analysing early medieval Irish poetry and to think more deeply uh, about the relationship between poetry and prose, poetry and rosk, poetry and prayer, poetry and hymnody. Um, I've proposed tentatively a, a more specific defini definition of covers. Uh, for example, and I'd welcome any thoughts uh, on that and related uh, terminology. But finally, in relation to the manuscript itself, um, I suggest that the selection, range and placement of the poetry in the Book of Ballycommon is both significant and meaningful. Taken in its entirety, I would tentatively suggest that the poetry of the Book of Ballycommon offers uh, a programmatic vision for an ideal Christian and perhaps specifically Catholic society. From kings to ecclesiastical tenants, from monks to penitents, the rich diversity of society um, is laid out in largely prescriptive and idealized Christian terms. There are a large number of kind of repeated themes that come up again and again within these, these poems, but the major one, as far as I'm concerned, is battle. Warfare against the devil, 
against the flesh, against temptation, against Jews, against unbelievers, all sections of society are being enjoined to become warriors for Christ. And this message, I suggest, may have had particular urgency in the Ireland of the 1570s. Our 11th century poet, writing about idolatry and the spread of the apostolic missions, wrote of the Apostle Philip that though the hero was bloodied, he was not weak. In late 16th century Ireland, Catholicism was also bloodied, but it was not weak. And I suggest that the muscular Christianity of the Book of Ballycommon is a central aspect of the manuscript, which we should bear in mind as we go on to explore other facets of its literary and historical significance. Thank you for your time.